welcome to Untangling Christianity. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. Wow, this is really interesting. I just pulled up uh, Our Father. Do you know how many New Testamental letters start off with that? So once you get out of the Gospels, Acts and Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, uh, 2, Thessalon- 2 Thessalonians, Philemon. That's a lot. What do you mean they start with Our Father? Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, this is, a, this is like a brand new formulation, right? This whole idea of treating God as Father, seeing God as Father when Jesus introduces the prayer. Like, it's, it's scandalous right from the beginning. It's shocking because it begins with our Father. You know, God is Yahweh, et cetera, et cetera, but God is not to be seen as, I mean, there's, there's no references. If you, if you look in the Old Testament, these references are... I'll go back and do it. Our father is old. Through our father, our father, there's no references to God that way. Uh, There's one in Isaiah. There's two at the end of Isaiah. That's it. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. And again, in 60, Isaiah 64, that was 63. Oh, yet, O oh Lord, you are our father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are the work of your hand. So, it's just interesting. So I think this is a good lead into an argument we we're having over email where you are holding, as I understood it, a very strong position that, well, you don't call it the Lord's Prayer. You call it the Disciples' Prayer. I call it the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> <laughs> it's like every time you bring that up it's like oh there he goes again yeah okay so the, so your contention is that your will be done on earth as it in as it is in heaven that little phrase is evidence that things are not going well in the world and that I don't know, is it evil exists? And this the context of this is the wider context is you've been using this as support for your Sunday morning discussion group that things aren't working out 100% of the way that they should be or that God would want. Okay, sort of. Okay. Sort of. I would say... And so if- I was disagreeing with you in the sense that mm. I felt like you were playing w- placing way too much... My understanding of what you're saying, and you've said it in past podcasts, is that because of this verse, it's very, very clear, and so why don't people get this? And I was pushing back against to say, well, I don't see that in that in those few words. I don't see that conclusion. It's not clear to me. Okay. I was coming at it from a slightly different angle. Okay, then clarify. Okay. I, I was saying that it's incredibly obvious if you are a Christian and you believe that that sin exists and that you sin, that it's very obvious that God's will isn't being done. And it's very obvious, therefore, that, that, that this verse should be taken to mean that and not the opposite. So I had someone telling me, literally two or three times, telling me that a verse that says that, you know, we should pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, doesn't mean that God's will isn't being done on earth. 
So my point is not so much about the verse, but the reality of human sinfulness, or if you like, look around you, see what you see, right? The idea that um, Rwanda, that uh, the Holocaust, that these terrible things that happened, that these are things that God desires. First of all, I, I think that thinking that way is a very, um, I would be very suspicious that someone isn't thinking that way simply to help themselves in a very warped way through the reality that the world is a cold and difficult place to navigate. It's scary. So if you can think that no matter what happens, there's got to be some good reason for it and that that good reason will be somehow made clear to you in the end or that you'll just come to accept it because you can think that way, then that might make it somehow ironically less scary, which I don't think it does at all. But I think it just helps us keep our head stuck in the sand. So my point was, no one who's a Christian who can conceptually say, yes, I am a sinner. I sin. I do things, you know, we've got to, I was going to say, I do things that are sinful. And we've got to talk about that. And we have spent a fair bit of time talking about the definition of that. And I would say that definition of sin is doing things, having dispositions, um, doing things or failing to do things, having dispositions or failing to, to have such dispositions that either consciously, pre-consciously, or unconsciously, we do things to thwart our relationship with God. So put in that context, and that's, that's one way of, of, of expressing or of defining sin that gets away from this idea of sin as a list of things that we do wrong. Like God is up there keeping score, keeping track, like it's all about rights and wrong, as opposed to, which it might be if God were only sovereign, but God is also Father. Like a be- is that like a behavior code? It's not like a, well, I mean, I think it, there are certain things that we could, we could eliminate from our behaviors and say, you know, these types of things are categorically things we would want to resist and not to engage in. And these types of things are categorically things we would want to embrace and to foster. But I don't think it's meant to be, given that God is both parent and father and sovereign, so that there's a love relationship and a truth-based relationship, we can't just go with the idea that it's all about right and wrong. God's not there keeping a list. God's seeking to foster relationship with us, right? And so when you think about sin as things which thwart that relationship, which for Christians is supposed to be a love relationship based on truth, it's supposed to be, in fact, your primary love relationship. It's to be an orienting love relationship, then all of a sudden we've got a definition of truth, uh, pardon me, of sin, that takes into account the full picture of who God is. Yes, we definitely want to, you know, push back against certain behaviors. Yeah, absolutely. But also, we're not doing it for the sake of, if you like, I guess the, 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 the question is, is sin the problem or is sin the symptom? And as I've tried to argue, sin is the symptom. It's not the problem. Because if it were the problem, what's the opposite of sinfulness? Holiness. If you're holy, is that all God asks of you? Well, the first commandment doesn't happen to be, be holy as I am holy. Doesn't happen to be that. Now, does holiness help? I think so. But it's not the goal. It's very clearly, very, very clearly not the goal. So sin is not the problem to which holiness is the solution. Sin is the symptom to which what? Right relationship with God 
is the solution and sin is a symptom of the problem that we don't have right relationship with God, that's what we're aiming at. So in the context of, okay, I think I understand your position better now. (laughs) So in the context of your Sunday discussion group, I think there was originally put forth this idea that God is always overcoming, that Mm. everything is, that that things are, but would they say 100% of the time? I mean, I would find that hard to believe. Would are, are they saying, nah, you know, 80, 20, 80% of the time things work out the way that, that God wants them to. The other 20%, yeah, the world's broken and it won't be redeemed until the end. But, you know, most of the time things are working out the way that God wants. Or like where, what are they saying there? Well, you know, and I think this is a, this is a tricky part, not only for this group, but for many churches. Um, so there is a very vocal minority and there is a very quiet majority. Now the vocal majority minority is so vocal that they've taken up almost all the airspace. So it's not like people, it's not like you've got like 15 people who are essentially climbing up, not saying anything. We've got these long periods of silence. And then you've got, you know, two to four people who are making lots of comments when comments are made. It's that those a couple of people are really filling up much of the space and then much of my time to this point has been devoted to responding to them, right? So I would say that those people are very firmly of the view that God's will is always being done. Now, I think this involves a couple of things. Like, first of all, you might say, well, how can someone possibly think that? If you're a Christian, one of the first things you understand is that you do things wrong, Right? And this, this, this typical definition of sin, stuff we do wrong, it's just wrong stuff, right? And it's part of who we are, and so there's the wrongness to ourselves. So leaving that aside, leaving aside my, my, my wish and my, my belief that that's a poor uh, definition because it doesn't take into account the full picture of who God is and the full picture of the type of relationship God wants with us, right? And if, sin's, if sin is in some ways, if, if, it's, a, if it's a symptom We've, we, we still have to deal with it. Whether it's a symptom or a problem, it still has to be dealt with, right? Um, but I think for most of these folks, I wouldn't say that this is a, you know, on the one hand, if we talk about this, we might say this is a no-brainer. How can you possibly think God's will is being done all the time when God's will isn't being done in your very life? If you can point to one or two things that over the past decade you've done wrong, and most of us could do it over the past day, most of us, if we're honest, could at least do it over the past week. Then clearly God's will isn't being done all the time. And if you're a Christian and you're not so terribly atypical, right? If you're not terribly messed up any more than the next Christian or whomever else in your church, whatever, your family, if you're all Christians, whoever that person, other person is, then this is pretty symptomatic of what it is to be human. And so on an intellectual level, this is a no-brainer. Right? What is God's will? And that's not a small question, but well, you kind of mentioned it in passing there. Right, but, it, but I, I, sure, um, I think if we take this notion of sin as a symptom, then we understand very clearly that God's will, right, is that we should be in right relationship with God. I would say that God's will is that all things should be rightly related with God. And then out of that, they will be rightly related with themselves and with, with, with their fellows and with the world around them. Right? So at a very basic level, what is God's will? 
God's will is that we should be rightly related with God. What's the problem there? The problem is we're not. What's the symptom of that problem? And, you, you know, and I would say, fine, if you, if you, we, we might mince words a little bit on this notion of sin as problem and sin as um, um, symptom, right? Sin contributes to the problem, I might say. It is a symptom of and a contributor to the overall problem. That might be a better way of saying it. And that overall problem is we are not in right relationship with God. And what does God desire above all things? That all things be in right relationship with God. The world, human beings, every created thing. And what is that relationship? Well, certainly that's a relationship of sovereignty, that God is sovereign. That is also the relationship of 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 creator, you know, and in, in the case of human beings, there's a kind of special orientation to that creatorship of God, which is parentship, fathership, right? As it's expressed through the Old and New Testaments. So this idea of, you know, what is God's will? I think people have this idea that, oh, God wants me to be a missionary, blah, blah. No, God wants you to be right in right relationship with God. And then to make choices accordingly. Now, are there possibilities that might enhance your flourishing and your ability to work and partner with God in the bringing about of God's kingdom more than others? Sure. And does that take some discernment? Sure. And are you going to make some mistakes along the way? Yep. So do I. Is that okay? Yep. It is. Because you're in a love relationship that is constantly drawing you back, reorienting you, and God is constantly in the business, as far as I can see, of offering possibilities to human beings for further growth, flourishing, development, and partnership with God. You know, I, I'm an agent for God. I work for God. It's what I do. And that's what Christians are called to do. You work for God. You know, and having a sense of how you do that, I would say, is pretty important for most Christians. But the point I was getting at before is that this mistaking the fact that you can think, no matter how you define it, no matter how you define it, the notion that God's will involves you to be not in right relationship with God is bogus. It is false. It is a complete misunderstanding. It is untrue. It is unsupported anywhere that I can see in the Bible. So where are things going now? Well, I think we're at the point where we're going to have to have a bit of a, pardon the pun, come to Jesus time here. <laughs> you know? Because one of the points, again, that I'm going to push is, you know, how did we miss this? How did all of us, no matter how you define God's will, the idea that you and I and all of us, as Christians particularly, particularly those who have said yes to God, the idea that you sin, that's just not right. That's just not what God wants. And if it's not what God wants, then it's not God's will. And you guys haven't talked about that. Well, I put it out there in an email, and uh, I haven't had any feedback yet. I would have thought, I would have hoped. I would have hoped that a couple of the strong voices who have been naysaying this idea and, and claiming that God's will is done all the time would have taken the opportunity to read that and think about it and would have kind of taken a moment to say, uh, okay, the blow is coming. I'm going to soften it by saying, hey, you know what, Greg, I read that, and uh, yeah, that makes some sense. So uh, I'm a little more open to hearing what you're saying than well, we have so far. Didn't you frame it last week too in the form of a questionnaire of some sorts? What 
What were, mm. I thought that was kind of interesting. How did that like evolve and what maybe talk about some of the questions and what they revealed? Yeah, well, I had 10 questions. A, a couple of them had one or two uh, subparts to them. And essentially, I'm just trying to get people to to approach this whole matter a little differently. So in other words, I'm trying to, instead of coming at them with um, some some of the more direct, um, maybe confrontational pieces where they would say, hey, God's will is being done all the time, and me saying, well, you know, no, I don't see that, and uh, I'm not sure where you're getting that from, and actually that leads us into suspicion and maybe self-deceit. Uh, instead, I've asked these questions, questions like, how satisfied are you with your Christian life? Scale of one to 10. What about your Christian life satisfies you? Uh, what, in your opinion, uh, do you need to learn in order to mature as a Christian? Name the top three things. How do you know when or what would make you suspect that your understanding of the Bible is mistaken? Name three indicators. And so it's just going through, those are the first four questions, just going through, um, well, sorry, I'll, I'll step back from that last sentence. The fascinating thing to me was, I now that I know the speed at which this group works and the number of points of resistance that I have found, right? Anything that seems to be out of the norm for them, they're going to resist without having much material, much support or reasons for their resistance, right? They'll throw out a Bible verse. Bible verses more often than not taken out of context um, and then just kind of thrown out there as though they don't have to, they don't have to prove that they're using it correctly. And I have to somehow go to apparently great lengths to disprove that they're using it correctly. But I noticed that we didn't get hung up. We didn't get, uh, there were no, I, I said to them very clearly at the beginning, I wanted to just go through the questions, but they did. They went through all the questions. They, they, I, in fact, I didn't even give them the, uh, the piece of paper. I had them write the questions down and then write out their answers. And did they share their answers? Like, where did it go from there? No, at the point that we finished, we finished precisely on time. So exactly at our finishing time. And I, I noted that to them and I said, I think this is a, we should feel glad about this. Uh, and I mentioned that I'd like them to bring the papers back next week and we would discuss the implications. Hmm. So there was no, no answer sharing. And so, so, you know, some of the questions I've just asked them so that they have a sense of how long did it take you to answer that question? I don't care what you put down. Well, how long, how many seconds did it take you? I asked you for three things. Could you come up with three? You know, and some of these, like, how do you know you're mistaken? If all the answers have to do with you, or with the Bible, or with the Holy Spirit, but don't have anything to do with, any, with anybody else outside of you, then what happens if you've got a way of reading the Bible, if you've developed a practice of reading the Bible to read what you want rather than reading what's there? So you're operating in a closed system. You're in a closed system. How are you going to get feedback? All right, so I think for, for a lot of this, it's just taking, allowing people to see some of the possible issues with the way they approach the Bible. Uh, you know, one of my, my fifth question was, how would you know that God's will is not being done in your life? Name three indicators. Well, do they have any indicators? Well, what would be some clues, right? So if people don't have any ways of getting input, they have no indicators that God's will isn't being done. 
how on earth would they know? Right. And so I've got a lot, I've got well, a handful of very confident people and I'm curious to know what sorts of answers they put down there. You know, and I think, I think I probably my approach is going to be next class, not so much to look at their answers and discuss them, but to give them feedback and say, if your answers look like this, this might be a good thing. If they look like this, this might be a source of concern. If they look like this, perhaps the course we're taking, this course of study we're doing is going to be really a jarring experience for you. So best to be prepared for that. And I think that was another point that I, in hindsight, I would have done differently. I would have tried to prepare them more for the nature of the course and the type of impact it might have so that they could, you know, I don't, I don't know if it would have gone any differently, but I think it would have been, I, I would do it that way in future. I think it'd be a little more fair. Can we post those questions in the notes? Yeah, I think so. I mean, no, I think that I, I don't know. I just think for people listening, that might be something interesting to ponder and look at. Maybe, I don't know, use it at their own church. Yeah, well, you know what? And we could probably put it in the Facebook group too. Just throw them in there and see what people think. Mm-hmm. But I think most of the point was like, I don't think I was going to go through hardly any of the answers that they had, except for the answer to my seventh question. So I had 10 questions. The seventh one is this. Think of a time when you were deceiving yourself as opposed to being an error, being dishonest, or simply being ignorant. How did you become aware of your self-deceit? Name three indicators of self-deceit. Now that one, I'm really interested to know what they wrote. And it was really, <laughs> it was really funny because, so I still have some of the, the adolescents in the class because their teacher is away. And most of them, I know that all but one of them who was at church that day was there in the class. So my youngest daughter is sitting right beside me. The place is completely quiet because I've read the question and I've told people I'd like you to write the questions down, please. So they don't have the questions. They need to write them if they're going to answer them. And then please answer them. And there were a number of questions about, well, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean self-deceit? What, what is... And then my daughter says, looks to me and she says, so... Papa, would self-deceit be kind of like this? Really, really, really quietly. But the room's totally hushed. <laughs> so they can hear her? Oh, yeah. They can hear her. <laughs> and I said to her, no, kind of, it's more like this. But um, I'm not really supposed to be telling you because that way I'm telling everybody else. And the whole room just kind of laughed. So I don't know what they'll say. I didn't really, I gave a bit of a, a definition, but I didn't, I didn't give a lot. So I think they've got at least enough to work with. Everybody should have had enough to work with. But my hunch is, had I said nothing to my daughter, I don't know if any of them or many would have had anything to put down in that for that question at all. And I think this is part of the issue. So in other words, if people, and the biblical text is, is, does a wonderful job at portraying this, right? How people deceive themselves, how deceit is part, self-deceit is is, is, a, is a human ailment. It's something that happens to us all, that can happen all the time, and it can be very destructive. Well, I think what's really, what I really like about your questions is, well, it doesn't feel like you're leading the witness, which I think is, like, it has integrity. But mm. I also feel like the, the questions also kind of force some self-reflection, like, how would you know? How do you determine? When you've been in this situation before, how have you known? 
Mm -hmm. in a way that can also be used in the present. Yes. Yeah. And I still, the more we talk about this whole self-deceit thing, it, it feels like such a slippery topic because I think that, including me, the people that are deceiving themselves don't see that they're deceiving themselves. Okay, but... but and, you know, that's always someone else. That's not a problem that I have. I mean, my neighbor definitely has it, but I don't. Okay, but why... I'm being why, sarcastic. Yeah, but you just said it was slippery, and then you just stated something very concrete about it. Okay. Why was, one not, why was what you said not very helpful? So... You can't tell you're being deceived. So when I say, think of a time yeah. you've been deceiving yourself, how did you become aware of your self-deceit? Name three indicators of self-deceit. No, and that's why I think that question is so helpful because it's hindsight. It's, oh, yeah, when I was in that situation, it didn't score with reality or someone was able to bring it to my attention or, I don't know, it feels very constructive. Yeah. Well, and you're also hitting on the fact that you can't see when you're deceived. Right, the, the 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 it's like the notion of how did you, how did you remember something you how do you remember something you forget? <laughs> well, I can't, not yet, because I'm still forgetting. Right in the past, as you said, hindsight. In the past, I remembered what I forgot, or I remembered what I forgot in the past. In hindsight, you know, I've got I can I can look back and I can see okay that I got some information from somebody else. I got some some indicators. But it's, I think it's just some of this really plain, basic stuff. And I'm, my sense is this whole idea of self-deceit, self this is the cornerstone of, of what's going on here when we have people who are not only claiming God's will's being done all the time, but who are, who are contorting, who are literally flip-flopping the meaning, the plain sense meaning of a biblical text to mean what it ostensibly to mean the opposite of what it ostensibly means, right? So when something says, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, whatever that will, whatever it means that God's, whatever God's will can be defined as, it's not being done on earth as in heaven, right? We're not told to pray things, particularly the only time Jesus kind of literally specifically instructs, not by practice, but in a didactic way, here's what you do and how you do it, folks. To think that that is somehow um, not to be taken seriously and that whatever can be taken at face value and understood in a straightforward way is somehow means the opposite of that is, is incredibly deceptive. Right? I think that's, that's, that's astonishingly dishonest. And, you know, I realize that somebody... At least one person has taken that approach, and I think a couple other people have probably tacitly followed along and said, yeah, that's what I think too. Um, and the reality is, well, join the club. We all do that. You know, being caught out in public on, uh, uh, during a Sunday school session might not feel very good for certain people, right? But the reality is I do that too. I'm very self-deceptive. I have that problem. I have to work at counter practices against what I would call our sinful practices, you know, and it's not a, so it's not an arbitrary thing that people just get it, got it wrong, that they somehow made this claim about the Lord's prayer or the disciples prayer. And they did so without thinking that, hey, you know what, I'm sinful too. But th this is a blind spot. So what are some of your countermeasures? 
Well, I, th- I think, first of all, I, I cannot be on my own, right? If I'm going this on my own, I have every power and ability and, and uh, sometimes inclination to counterman what the biblical text is, is, is patently, blatantly uh, indicating. So there's a clear indication that God's will isn't being done. I can read that to mean that God's will is being done, right? I can completely twist the text to mean what I mean, mean what I want it to mean. I can ignore the Holy Spirit, right? I do that too. Um, but I think when we are in community, when there's more of us, and we, when there's the possibility that, when there's the necessity for open dialogue within the community, for that community to be seen as vital and healthy, then we are at a place where we can begin to, you know, weigh up other, our views against the, the views of others, where other people can make comment on what we're seeing. Um, you know, I think ben, basic awareness of where our weaknesses are. So for individuals who would have a propensity to read into the biblical text what they want it to mean. So that's what we call eisegesis. We like to exegete, ex meaning out of, ice meaning into. So if you have a propensity to eisegete, okay, recognize that. And say to yourself, all right, I need a little bit of extra help and extra guidance when it comes to um, Bible reading. So how can I work with that? Well, you might want to become um, a little more conversant with commentaries. You might want to see what type of access you can get to some more uh, scholarly or learned perspectives, right? And whether that comes from books, whether that comes from articles, whether that comes from specialists and experts that you might have to have contact with, those would be all good things to do. Right, and then other sorts of counter practices would be typically reading the Bible against ourselves. You know, so we all like to read the Bible, and we read about Jesus and the disciples and those nasty Pharisees. Let's try reading that the nasty Pharisees are us. It's literally me, and and trying to inquire of myself: How do I do the very things that these Pharisees or religious leaders or or thick-headed disciples? Right, it's not just the intellectual, learned, scholarly people who are the problem. It's everybody. It's all of Israel. And Jesus is trying to bring reform to all of Israel. How am I the guy that Jesus is talking against, not the guy that Jesus is commending or trying to help or um, working for? So there's that. Um, You know, things like active listening. So I would like to, uh, later on when we do some of these sessions, I would like to bring out some ideas that I know are going to be jarring for people and, and have an active listening session. So I will present something and then I'll ask somebody to repeat back what, what I said. Now, likely if this is really jarring for someone, all they're going to be able to do is stick on the fact that this is a really uncomfortable notion that's been put out in front of them and they have to beat it off. Well, they're probably not going to have a very good sense of what I said. That would be interesting. I, I mm-hmm. saw, I saw a recent, um, it was a meeting in a business context and they were practicing this. And it was really, mm. it was, I don't know. It was kind of awkward. It felt a little awkward, but I could see some value in it, which was after each person at a meet at this particular meeting spoke, mm. they would hand this token to someone else. Mm-hmm. And before that person could share their perspective, they had to reflect back what they understood the person that just spoke's perspective to be. Mm-hmm. And they could not move on until that 
position was accurately reflected. Whether they agreed with it or not had nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the self-deceit, the big part of the self, <clears throat> pardon me, that both parts are, are equally big, but maybe I would focus more on the self part. So if it's self-deceit, then I think what we want to do is engage in decentering practices. So that's probably what I'd call some of these things, like active listening, um, participation in dialogue, uh, reading the Bible against myself. Um, you know, and some of the big ones are hard to achieve, right? Like counseling. Go to counseling. Because then you've got somebody who's trained, who you're paying, and who's completely focused on you and what you're saying and what you're doing. I, 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 I would have a hard time envisaging a person or a community particularly where most people don't need to spend some time in counseling. And yet, I don't think it really happens. And I would, you know, maybe I'll piss some people off by saying this. I would really be careful, really be careful as a Christian about a lot of the Christian counseling that's out there. Um, I have had counselors who are Christians. I think I was trying to tally my counselors. And if I count my, my spiritual counselors, which is not the same as um, spiritual, spiritual direction, not the same. I think it's a little, I would say spiritual counselors as being much more intense. Like I think what we had at Labrie with our tutors was more about spiritual counseling, right? And can be very, very direct, uh, very confrontational, uh, particularly as that relationship is, you know, trust is formed and there's a deepening in the relationship. I was trying to count the number. I think I'm at eight or nine where I've spent at least six months with somebody. And all of these engagements with people who are able to critically like interact with and respond to whatever the subject is, whether it's grief, whether it's abuse, whether it's um, marriage issues, whether it's faith issues, right? It doesn't really matter. Uh, um, You know, work, uh, what would you call that? Um, Counseling to sort of direct you in terms of your work, your your vocational or, or professional choices, all of these things. I think are really, really valuable. I don't really know how to emulate that in a church context. I don't, personally, I don't, I don't think you can. Maybe if you have a big church and you've got a counselor who's competent, I would still probably go out of house and look for somebody and, and say, you know what, I'm investing in myself. I'm investing in my ability to, to know myself better and thereby to feel better about myself, to be, because I am, will become a better person and to typically be less susceptible to self-deceit. You know, and then other things like traveling, being in a foreign culture, being a minority, these things help us see the world from a perspective that isn't all about us. You know, so I think probably in North America, the people who are, and I, I say this with some very, like, I don't know what the grades are here. I don't know what the spectrum is, but probably the most likely people to be self-deceived are, uh, you know, middle-aged white males. Because in a lot of ways, in most, most of our North American culture, they're at the top of the food chain. The higher you are up, the more power you have, the more likely you are to engage in self-deceit, I would say. You know, but is that going to be a perceptible difference? Probably not. You know, and is this, I'm just shooting off the side of my 
you know, this is this pure speculation on my part, pure speculation. I, I could back off of that in a very quickly, but I, I think that we do need to think about how much power we have in any given circumstance or setting and then begin to ask ourselves, you know, how are we using that power? How are we actually asking ourselves questions and when are we asking ourselves questions about self-deceit? And if the answer is never, I, I think that's the wrong answer. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Untangling Christianity podcast. A summary and resources for this episode are at our website, untanglingchristianity.com. If you'd like to join our private Facebook group or reach us by email, send your requests, questions, or even a simple hello to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. Music on this podcast is provided by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license.